Well, what is victory? In sports, that's easy to define. It's the, the team that wins the game, whether it be uh, the most points at the end of the game or, or the highest score. In a few weeks, we're going to see what I consider to be the greatest spectacle in sports. Um, that's the NCAA basketball tournament, March Madness. On Monday, April 4th, one team will stand as the national champions while every other team sits back at home and watches. See, it's easy to spot the victors. But what about in life? How do we know that we've achieved victory? This is difficult. Is it power? Is it prestige? Is it wealth? How do we define victory? Well, there is a group of people who claim to be believers of Christ, followers of Christ, who peddle this message of prosperity. They say that believe in God and you'll achieve victory. Give a certain amount of money always to that person. And that God will return that money sevenfold to you. This is the core of what many popular preachers teach, isn't it? That God's main focus is so that you can be wealthy and happy. They think that God only wants the best for his people. So that must mean that his followers need to be wealthy and healthy. He would never want any of his followers to not live in abundance of wealth. So all you have to do is just figure out the secret formula that they've figured out. By the way, the secret formula is to go on TV and convince other people to send you money. That's the secret. The prosperity gospel is a false gospel that teaches these things. These preachers who are flying in private jets and, and living in multi-million dollar mansions are practicing what they preach. Most of them have these things. There's two big problems here. First, they're living well by conning often poor people. And the second, it's a perversion of scripture. Their idea of victory is material blessings, that they can continue to get things and build their wealth and have an easy life. That's victory to them. Proponents of the prosperity gospel will tell you that the victory we see comes here and now. They say that you can live pain-free and you can be rich and successful. And, and the verse that continues to, to come into my mind is this, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What good is a private jet? What good is a mansion on a lake? What, what good is a house on the beach? What good is a seven-figure salary? The moment that you take your last breath, it's gone. Here lies the biggest problem for preachers of this false gospel. Where is their treasure? Where is their victory? Before I go any further, I want to be clear about something. I'm not saying that this life doesn't matter. I'm not saying that at all. I grew up thinking, maybe you did too, that, that we need to be entirely focused on eternity. We need to be entirely focused on heaven. And what that, that's done, unfortunately, is we've failed to meet the needs that people have here and now. We've failed to speak out on, on issues that the church should be speaking out on because, well, you know what, we're focused on eternity. I'm not saying that 
needs here don't matter. And I don't think anybody did this intentionally, but it can lead us to lose sight that people have needs here and now and people have things that we can help with here and now. I'm not saying that those things don't matter. But what I am saying is that if right now is all that matters or right now matters the most, you're in a dangerous spot. If all that you're concerned about are earthly victories, you are missing out. So what is true victory? What does that look like for us? That's what we're going to examine this morning. It's going to require us to ask uh, yet another question. What does the resurrection mean to us? These go hand in hand. And you'll see this as this passage unfolds and as you remember what we've learned all the way up to this point in just chapter 15, the resurrection is our victory. The empty tomb and the empty cross is our victory. It's not an accident that Paul talks about the resurrection of Christ and then leads up to this point where he talks about victory in life of the believer. So my first point this morning is this, why do we need victory? Verse 50, Paul writes this. I tell you, brothers, tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Just a few verses ago, Paul wrote that we will have physical bodies in eternity. And now he's saying that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So what do we do with that? Corruptible flesh and blood will not inherit the kingdom. I never really thought much about my own death that one day I'll face until fairly recently. I've been thinking, especially over the last few months, about my own mortality, that, that, that one day I will die, just as each one of us will as well. We're preaching through a, a book of the Bible that is dealing with the resurrection. And you know this as well as I, you can't be resurrected until you die first. And so the, the cold, hard truth is this, 100% of us will die. Death and taxes, right? Well, you can evade taxes. You cannot evade death. We all lose. We will all experience defeat. Now, for someone with a worldview that says that this life is all that there is, this is a bleak prospect. There's no way to explain death other than to say, well, yeah, that's just the way that it is. But we can see how someone gets to that point. And why it would drive people to jump out of perfectly good airplanes, squeeze through tiny little caves, run with bulls down a street in Spain. Because you only live once. Experience all that there is. Do everything that you can. Push yourself to the limit because you only live once. Now, if you do those things, you may end up not living very long, but you still only live once. Especially the bulls. I don't understand that. Maybe that's the way you felt, that when it's over, it's over, so you're going to try to pack in as much as you can into this life, and you're going to try to do everything that you can because this is all that there is. Maybe you're in that position. Maybe you're fighting against the truth that you will grow old and die. Just this week, just as a, as a point of studying in my sermon, I turned the television on, and I I started at channel one and I just kept going. 
and I wanted to see, and I never, I never knew how many of those stupid infomercials were on TV. And, and so I started looking at the titles, and I'm, I'm not lying to you. Maybe you've seen these. There are three that stood out to me, and I found these. The first one was Cindy Crawford's Skin Secrets. The next one was Five Makeup Tips for Older Women. The best one across, this is the best title I've ever seen. Chuck Norris is 80 and still ripped. It's that machine he uses, I think. Living healthy is a good choice, but most of these products are pitched in the hopes that you feel bad about yourselves and that you're willing to do anything you can to fix it. I think it's in large part to the fact that we don't recognize or we recognize that death is unnatural. It's not normal. This is not how it was intended and designed to be. Death is unnatural. Now, if you go to Red Square in Moscow, you can visit a mausoleum where you can uh, go see the body of Vladimir Lenin. He died almost 100 years ago, but you can could, you could still see that his body's been cared for and preserved. But he's been dead since 1924. He hasn't moved. His brain doesn't work if it's still in there. There's no blood pumping through his veins. His body's a corpse. It's not immortal. We can do all of those things. We can preserve our bodies after death. If you've got enough money. We could try to preserve our bodies during life by trying to look like Chuck Norris or Cindy Crawford. We could do all of those things to, to push back the aging process and to, to hopefully give us a little bit more time or at least look better on the way. But we know that this will defeat us. That sin in, in our world has caused death and decay to reign over now. And that we know one day that we will not survive. And we fight against it. So, coming back to the question, why do we need victory? Well, we need victory over death since we can't do it on our own. We need someone or something to intercede for us. We can't defeat death. There's no way. We will get old, we will age, and we will die. How does this happen? Well, this is a mystery. This is what happens in verses 51 through 53. It's a mystery. Paul says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Since we can't be in the presence of God in our sinful states, we must be transformed. We need to be changed. And when Paul talks about sleep, he's talking about the eternal death. He says that we shall not all die. All believers will be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. This transformation takes place at the last trumpet, meaning Christ's second coming. When this trumpet sounds, those who have died and were in Christ will be raised up with bodies that will not age and that will not die. Like I said last week, many of us, me included, we ought to be thankful for that one day. We've got metal in our bodies. We've got plastic in our bodies. 
we've got cuts and, and surgical wounds, and, and, and we've got all of those things that happen. We're, 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 our memories are going. We're, we're not as quick as we used to be. All that's going to be fixed. All those things that ail you will be fixed. Turn your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4. Verses 13 through 18. And this should give you some encouragement here. Because this, this passage parallels with what we're reading. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. That you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that, those, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of a trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. When Christ returns, believers will be snatched up in the air and will be transformed so that we no longer have these perishable bodies. They'll be physical, but different. Mystery. I'd like to fully understand this. I'd like to fully understand a lot of the Bible. Things I just can't comprehend. How in the world am I going to meet Jesus in the air? I have a fear of heights. How is that going to work? Right? Will our new bodies look just like the ones we have now? I have no idea. I don't have a choice in the matter, but as I said last week, I am hoping and praying for muscles and hair on my head. Lots of it. There's a mystery to this victory, isn't there? When we read a passage of scripture, we should read it as it's written. Absolutely. The authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit wrote it in a certain way. And so when we study the Bible, we study it that way. But in a sermon, we can sometimes deviate from that a little bit. And so what I want to do is I want to read verse 56 before we go to 54 on. And there's a reason for this. We've seen that there is victory, that we need victory. And we see that there's a mystery to it. And so the question then comes is how do we get that victory? But before we see how we get that victory, I want to see how we don't get that victory. It may be strange to look at a passage like this, but it makes sense. Look at verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. So sin brings death. Sin separates us from God. So what's the sting? The sting is that separation that we experience when we're not part of the family of God. That God created humanity to be in communion with him. To have a relationship with the creator. And we've broken that or the, the community. We've broken that relationship. Our, our sin has caused this gap, this gulf to be created that we can't cross on our own. And that stings. It separates us from God. So here, what do most people do? Most people aim to be good people. 
That, that's the cure. We all have this innate sense that we're, something is not right. Something is broken. There, there is something that just doesn't seem right with the world and with our lives. I think we all feel that, Christian or not. And those who are without Christ, what they do is they try to fill that gap on their own. It's kind of like going to the Grand Canyon and taking a shovel and trying to throw dirt in there to fill the hole up. You're not going to do it. And we try to be good and nice and helpful. And we try to do all of those things to, to, to make ourselves get better and to be good people. In other words, we try to earn the favor of God. We try to get our own victory through the law. Paul doesn't really talk about the law in 1 Corinthians. He talks about it a lot in other places. But, but what he's saying here, it is based upon the idea that people get or understand what the law really does. It plays a part here. Paul was a, a trained Jewish expert. And according to the Jewish tradition or teaching of his day, the law was intended not only to bring people to God, or at least that's what the teachers taught, the law was designed to, or at least thought to be, to make the world a better place. Follow the law, don't do these things, the world will be better. Well, yeah, if we could. If we could follow just the Ten Commandments, not to mention the hundreds of other standards or laws that God gave in the Old Testament, if we could just follow the Ten Commandments, would the world be a better place? Well, absolutely. The problem is we don't do that. We certainly don't do that in our hearts, but even in our actions, we don't do that. Paul says in Romans 5 that the law actually doesn't restrain sin in our hearts, but it multiplies it. So what does the law bring? It brings an awareness of one's guilt. The law is a teacher, something that shows us our true selves. It's, it's kind of like holding a mirror in front of our face, a good mirror, not one that's fuzzy or, or broken or damaged or dirty, but a perfect, clean mirror. We hold it in front of our face, and what do we see? We see an accurate reflection of what we look like. Maybe you're like me, you do this in the mirror when you're getting ready. You'll angle your face so you look a little bit better. Do you do that? I don't do this when I'm standing in front of a mirror because then I look like I don't have a neck. I, I try to make the light work a little bit in my favor. I'm not fooling anybody. And then the other day I'm looking and I'm brushing my teeth and I look up and I say, oh, there's some big bald spot coming in the back of my head. That's why I'm focusing on hair a lot. The mirror, when it's clean, it accurately reflects reality. And the law does the exact same thing. We, we hold the law up in front of our face and all that we see is guilty, guilty, guilty. We see ourselves as who we really are. We see our guilt, the law, the Old Testament standard that God gave cannot bring life. It cannot bring victory. The law teaches us that every part of who we are is touched and tainted by sin and our inability to do what the law commands of us. You see the problem. The law, the thing that so many people are chasing after, be good, do good, live good, those things that people are chasing after, 
God designed that to never be able to save anyone. In fact, it was given to show us how completely unable we are to save ourselves. In fact, we can't even achieve victory through the law. We can only achieve death. So then where does the victory come from? So we see how not to get victory. So how do we get victory? Look at verses 54 through 57. When the perishable, perish means to death or things that will die. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We anxiously await the day when the perishable and the mortal will be covered by the imperishable and the immortal. Now before anybody thinks that what, this is what I experience a lot when I'm talking about the New Testament. Well, that's just the New Testament. Before you think that, this is not new. This has been part of God's plan since the beginning. Look in the Old Testament. I want to show you two particular passages that, that pretty much say the exact same thing. The first is in Isaiah 25, verse 8. He shall swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. This anticipates the day that God will judge the wicked and save his people. Sin and everything that comes with it, most notably death, will be wiped away along with the tears of those who are following after Christ. Everything bad in your life will be taken away. Now we don't just keep our minds on heaven, right? We, we, we anxiously await that day and we live this life as if Jesus returns now. But, but, but those things are something that we can look forward to. Things that we hope for. Things that we put our hope in. But all of the, the, the pain, not just even the physical pain, but the emotional pain, the trauma that you have faced, the spiritual difficulties that you've endured, all of those will be wiped away. Another verse is Hosea 13, 14. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol. I shall redeem them from death. Oh, death, where is or where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol. Where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. This will happen at the time Isaiah 25 occurs. Hosea 13 talks about the judgment that will come upon Israel because of their sin of idolatry and pride. And these words in verse 14 come in the middle of God promising to judge them for their sin. The point of all this is to say this, that God promises to judge all wickedness. Now later in Hosea, we see a promise to restore Israel. And that promise finds its fulfillment in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul sees this happening in the lives of believers. Church, this is the victory. The promise that, that God says that one day he will destroy all wickedness. That he will separate himself for once and for all from all wickedness and all sin. And he will embrace us as his adopted children who have been perfected and made to be like Jesus. And there will be no more sin and no more death and no more sorrow and sadness. 
This is the victory. These passages from the Old Testament are, are not just meant for one group of people. It's not just meant for the Jews. It's not just meant for one ethnicity. They are meant for the entire world. The victory does not belong only to the Jews, but to every tribe and nation and tongue. Now we see these passages when Jesus said he comes to save the world. Now we know that doesn't mean every single person in the world. We know that uh, that would be universalism and that runs exactly opposite of the gospel. We know that, that the, the path is, is narrow and that not many people are going to go through. We know that. So what does Jesus mean when he says the world? He says those outside of Judaism. He's talking to Jews and he says, I've come to save everyone else as well. Not just you. All of them. Not everyone, but from every people group. Now, if you are in Christ, meaning that you've turned from your sin and you've given your life to Christ, you are promised this victory. Every person has access to this victory. Every person who repents and trusts in Christ achieves this victory. The victory comes when Jesus wipes away every tear and takes away every part of your sadness and suffering. And the power of sin no longer influences you. You say, well, that sounds great. Give me some more of that now. Well, a hard part of this is not having it right now. As the, uh, one of my favorite philosophers, Tom Petty, said, waiting is the hardest part. And that's one of the most difficult things about the Christian faith, isn't it? It's the waiting We've, we've got a taste of it already, but it's waiting for the, the ultimate consummation of everything to, to come to be. We, we, we get a taste of this when we gather on Sunday mornings, don't we? Where we get to sit with people who are different from us and we get to, to sing our praises and worship God together. When we take communion together, it's a, a bit of a, a taste of the feast that we will one day have with Christ. We pass this on to others as we engage with people in evangelism. We get a glimpse of this when we're having relationships that are built around discipleship. So how do we live a victorious life then? So we see that we need victory. We see how not to get it. We see how we will get it. But we want a little bit of it now, don't we? Well, look at verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This should be our aim, shouldn't it? Imagine, imagine that you've died and that you're able to watch your family go through all of those funeral preparations that so many of us have had to do. What do you want people to say about you? Usually we, we don't speak ill of the dead, but if everybody was honest, I mean, let's just be honest, most of the stuff that's going to be said about us at our funeral, it's all going to be really nice, isn't it? No one's going to say, man, that guy was a jerk and he had a temper. No. It's going to be, no, that guy was a sweet man. No. What is it that you want people to say about you? In fact, what is it that if you were able to watch the, your funeral being prepared, what would you want people to say and what would you want put on your headstone? Steadfast. Immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Wouldn't that be awesome? 
Wouldn't that be fantastic for people to think about you in that way? That's a victorious life. Now notice that the first verse, or the first word in verse 58 is therefore. The entire chapter has led up to this point in verse 58. The entire case about the importance of the resurrection has come to this. Because Jesus rose from the dead, you will one day do likewise. Now go and live differently. Because Jesus died and rose again, you have the freedom and the power to go live for him. Be different in the world. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Be always abounding in the work of the Lord. Stand firm in the gospel. Don't let anything sway you from what you know to be true. Give to the work of the Lord. See, for every believer, every single one of us, if we've been changed by the gospel, by the power of God, we must act on it. There are people who who know here, but they don't do anything here. There's people a lot who work, but they don't have it right here. And the Bible tells us we got to have both. Listen to what James says in James chapter 2. He says that works don't save us, but when we're saved, we work. Listen, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things that are needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is Someone will say, well, you have faith and I will have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Listen, if you're not moved by the resurrection of Christ to go out and do something, if you're not moved by the fact that your Savior is no longer dead, that your Savior defeated sin and the grave, if you're not moved by that, check your spiritual pulse. This ought to move us to go do something. This ought to move us to go serve and to tell everyone that we can about Christ. See, lives changed. The resurrection of Christ pushes us to do that. Now, all this talk about victory should lead you to ask, what is true victory? True victory is not what most would have you believe. True victory doesn't happen when you suddenly increase your bank account or something extraordinary happens in your life. True victory is only found when someone trusts in Christ and embraces the promises that he's made. Verse 58, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Listen, we've known each other for a few years now. You've known me and I've known you. Um, we don't do this all the time, do we? Be honest. Like we, you don't, I don't, none of us here do. You may be the nicest person in the world, but you can't be verse 58 all the time. It's, people talk about a Proverbs 31 woman. I, I, there's no one can do all of that, right? Verse 58, we could be verse 58 people. It doesn't sound good, but we could be verse 58 people. And, and we can't do this all the time. And if you could, if you say, well, I could, then you don't need the Holy Spirit then. In his resurrection, Jesus not only gave us life and salvation, but he showed us how we achieve victory. Better yet, how he achieved victory for us, for the glory of God. 
And the only way that we can get any kind of victory is by putting our faith in Christ and living for him. This passage, the entire book of 1 Corinthians really, was written to a church. The Corinthian church was trying to find its way. Now, again, I want you to, to put yourself in their position for a second. Imagine that you are part of this church plant. And it's not just any kind of church plant. It's a church plant before the New Testament was even closed. Okay, so you're still trying to figure out ways that, that, that God has, has largely, outside of creation, has been silent for about 400 years. And you hear the story of Jesus and the gospel and, and you trust in Christ and, and, and you, you are brought into the family. Most people are from different religions, a lot of pagan religions, a lot of weird stuff that most of those religions don't even exist anymore. Some people had only been followers of Christ for a few years, others just a few months. You have pastors and other leaders and servants, but you're still very young in your faith. In fact, you're, you're still working out things that we take for granted. Things like, which letters from these teachers and apostles do we accept, right? Because we didn't have this. So we're getting letters from all these guys. What do we do when they contradict each other? They're still dealing with how God could be three persons, but still one God. And if Jesus was God, did he stop being God when he became man? Was he just an apparition? Not really a person. Did the Father become the Son who later became the Spirit? There are still people who believe that, but they were working through all of these things. Things that we take for granted. Not only that, in addition to trying to figure out what they believe and who to trust, they were facing daily persecution. Being a Christian made them an outcast. It made their lives difficult. Add to that the fact that they were part of a new religion that they were taught, that, that the people who they were taught to hate for their entire lives are now brothers and sisters. And not only are they brothers and sisters, now you have to sacrifice what you want so you can be a blessing to them. Where just a few months ago you hated their guts. These believers in the church of Corinth, I, I mean, outside of the power of God, there is absolutely no reason why they should have made it through. Literally, they were doing everything at the hardest part. They were trying to, I mean, what they were trying to do was exactly the opposite of what every church planner would want right now. Try as hard as you can. Do you, can you imagine what they would have experienced? Can you imagine what they would have prayed for? My guess is they would have been begging God to take that away. Better yet, my guess is they would have been begging God, send your son now. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. But we know that he didn't, and he hasn't yet. We eagerly anticipate that day when Jesus returns to make all things new, but it hasn't happened yet. So what do you think would have given these people hope? What would have fueled them to keep going? In light of all the persecution and pain that they suffered. It was the hope in the resurrection of Christ. And that one day they will also receive resurrection. In other words, the hope of victory pushed them to keep going on. To continue in the fight. It propelled them to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because they knew that the 
work of the Lord and their labor was not in vain. Now, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I'm guilty of using sports illustrations way too much. I get it. I, I don't know anything else but sports in the Bible. That's really all that I know. That's all I read. That's all I pay attention to. I've tried. If you've got some better illustrations, help me out. But, but, but hear me on this one. Get, just humor me for a second. This is my favorite time of year. Usually, when they're not locked out or on strike, baseball's about to start, right? That's exciting. But better than that, it's March Madness almost. It's conference tournament season. It's, it's basketball, wall-to-wall hoops. Every single channel is going to be nothing but basketball. If you like a show on CBS that comes on in prime time, if it's on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Sunday for three weeks, you're not going to watch it because it's basketball on TV. It's the best time of the year. This is like Christmas for me, but better. Now, what happens in the tournament, right? There are now 68 teams that make it to the, the NCAA Tournament Division I. But guess what? Right now, there's 350 Division I teams that they all have hope that they can make it to the Final Four. Every single team has hope. Before the big tournament, every conference, there's 32 or 34 conferences, 32 conferences, and, and all of those conferences have tournaments. And if you get hot and you start winning some games, no matter if you've lost every game before the season, you start winning games, you can win your tournament and go to the big dance. Every single college basketball team right now has hope. Hope that they can win. Hope that they can get all the way in advance and keep winning and surviving and going through. I, I can tell you this, coaches right now are hoping. Because they get bonuses for making the tournament. The university makes money if a team makes the tournament. It's been shown that when a team makes a, an advanced run in the tournament, when they make it to a Final Four, admissions and enrollment goes up. All these applications go up, which means more money to the university. So you wonder why they pay college coaches $5 million a year. It's because they're making that money on the end. The players want to win because they, they want to achieve victory. They want to be immortalized. It's not really, but they want to be immortalized, remembered forever. We, if you watch college basketball, you talk to me, and we, we talk about stuff that happened back in the 80s when I was a kid, and I remember where I was when that guy made that shot. As long as I live, I'll remember that person, right? All these players want that. And more than that, the players want to make a name for themselves and maybe become a professional. They have hope that they'll play well, that they'll win that they can advance and be known. And this hope makes them play harder. Some players are seniors and it's the last chance they'll ever have. But whatever the reason, the hope of a championship being remembered as a great forever is what pushes them to work harder. It drives them. Now church, this hope, as important as it is for me and for other basketball junkies, it's meaningless. It's just a game. It's just a bunch of really, really tall guys throwing a, a ball into a hoop. Like, that's really what it is. That's all that basketball is. And all sports really comes down to that, right? It, it, sports at its base level is meaningless in the ultimate uh, understanding of life and existence. I get that. It's not that it's unimportant. But the hope that those teams have to win a championship is meaningless in comparison to eternity. What we have as Christians... The, the, by the way, the truth is 349 of those teams are going to fail. Only one will achieve victory. But as Christians, we have hope that doesn't fail. 
It's got a 100% success rate. We have hope that the living God will do what he says. We have hope that there is a future for us beyond here and now. And that future does not contain death and decay. And how do we know that our hope is not misplaced? Remember what 1 Corinthians 15 is all about. The importance of the resurrection. Our hope comes from the fact that Jesus is no longer buried. That he has done everything that he says he would do. Our hope is in the one who has defeated death. We're just watching, working, and waiting for all to be made new. Would you pray?